0: Of course, when you donate mosquito nets and you give, um, you know, free cash transfers and things like that, you will have some impact. But what is the goal here, right? Is the goal to alleviate the pain and struggle a little bit, or is the goal to fundamentally transform people's lives and thereafter economies to make them independent beings?
1: Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Stop financializing everything. What is true wealth? What's the right metric for success? Much of how we live presupposes that our incomes or spending is a good measuring stick. But can you really quantify success with a bank balance? Or should we include softer things like learning and love, generosity and gratitude, and happiness and well-being? Hello, and welcome to episode two of season two of the Mindful Wealth podcast. We are here today with um, Ifosa Ojomo and Jacob Fotung. Now, both of these gentlemen are associate researchers at the uh, Clayton Christensen Institute, and their focus is on global prosperity. Ifosa is a TEDx speaker and author of the book, The Prosperity Paradox, and so we're Really looking forward to this conversation today. So, maybe we can start out, gentlemen. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do?
0: All right. Now, I'll, I'll take a first stab here. Uh, you know, like you said, I'm uh, very fortunate to be working at the Clayton Christensen Institute, um, uh, where uh, our team uh, does a lot of research on how innovation and a specific type of innovation uh, can. Trigger uh, global prosperity, you know, our our hope is to move away from uh, having a conversation about alleviating poverty or managing poverty to, To 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 actually understanding the causal mechanisms of how we create prosperity uh, which is synonymous with abundance and flourishing and opportunity, as it's really just a, a very, it's a fundamentally different way of thinking about the world. Um, and so we do a lot of that research here at the Christians Institute to help other organizations rethink uh, how, how they uh, view poverty, prosperity, development, innovation, and so on and so forth. Um, so I'm excited to be here uh, and I can't wait to dive into the combo.
2: And I'm Jacob photon uh, I'm a research associate at the Institute. Um, I, I work at the back end to help FOSA do his work really well. Um, so we, um, I personally make sure that all the projects we have on deck and the ones we plan in the future, um, you know, align with our goals and our mission to really, um, you know, actually what you know, uh, bring prosperity in, in, kind of in the work that they do and, and how we um, really use the theories at the institute um, to you know, make a difference in the world. So I'm really excited to be here and thank you so much for
3: having me. I, I mean, does that, I'm, I'm just reading between the lines here, but that means pretty much Jacob does the work and if also takes the credit, is that how that works? Well, I was
0: hoping, <laughs> I was hoping you or your listeners would not catch that, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> you summarized that really
2: well. (laughs)
3: Uh, So uh, after watching the TED Talk and and just just reading about you both a little bit, um, it strikes me that you guys focus a lot on the macro. And we talk about both on the macro and the micro levels. Um, But we like to start these conversations really understanding what true wealth is. You know, we talk about it as you know mindful wealth or 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 true life success and i've heard it referred to as happiness or well-being individually but you guys probably think about it culturally i just would you would you mind sort of laying the groundwork on what is success what is true wealth from your perspective yeah i mean I, you know the i i've always thought
0: the micro and macro are uh, uh very much aligned in the sense that uh, what makes up a macro? It's a bunch of micros. Uh, and so whenever you see you know, folks uh, talk about what's happening at a, at a very high level, uh, if they don't understand the uh, fundamental causal mechanisms at the micro level, uh, then I'm afraid uh, what they're going to be talking about uh, will be data that does not necessarily represent the phenomena. And so, you know, one analogy I use a lot is is, is illness. Uh, when when someone pre- presents to the doctor is a certain, you know, with a certain kind of illness, uh, you know, you can think of that as the macro. It's like, okay, I've, I've got a fever, I'm, I'm I'm shivering, I've got headaches, and so on. That's the macro. That's not the phenomenon. Until the doctor understands what's happening at the micro level, he or she would not be able to diagnose properly, uh, and ultimately uh, will not be able to prescribe what the patient needs. Uh, And so the micro and macro are very connected, even though a lot of times we we, we might look and think think they're not. Um, And so with our work, uh, even though when we write uh, and and when we think and when we do research, uh, we have a, a view towards countries gaining prosperity, right? we, we, we want and, and believe, like I believe, that economically poor countries in the world today can be wealthy, they can be prosperous. But that does not happen at a macro level if it does not happen at the micro level with individuals, and then households, and then communities, and cities, and states, and then nations, and, and continents, and so on. And so a lot of our research focuses on using uh, our professor, who unfortunately passed away January 2020, Clay Christensen, uh, his theories, uh, to understand these causal mechanisms at the micro level. Uh, We understand what is, for example, the job to be done of an individual uh, when they, uh, you know, a popular example is, you know, drink a milkshake in the morning. What is the job to be done? If we understand that, we can then design an organization that helps them purchase a milkshake, but then think about the organization we design. It's employing people. It It's resident in a particular state, in a particular country, and then ultimately creates prosperity. And so you see the inextricable link uh between the micro and the macro and that's one thing we're really trying to
3: emphasize in our work i'm gonna i'm gonna lean on you though to to define what is true wealth what is true wealth that
0: that's 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 a tough one um that's a tough one so so uh i I would have to define it for for myself. And this by no means is a, you know, (laughs) if it resonates with some of the listeners, amazing. If not, um, shove it. And, you know, (laughs) uh, I I think for me, and I'd love to hear Jacob's uh, take on this as well, but I think uh, true wealth uh, um, is is when an individual uh, is content uh, physically, uh, economically, spiritually, uh, emotionally, um, and socially, um, and I think uh, because of how important my faith is uh, in my life, uh, the spiritual component uh, is incredibly key uh, because that tends to drive a lot of it feeds into a lot of the other areas in my life. So I could. I could be extremely wealthy emo, um, uh, economically, like have millions of dollars in the bank, and we know many people who do, uh, yet wake up every day, really struggle with my purpose, struggle with my, my relationships, um, what, what am I doing here on earth, um, and so uh, I think you know, for me, when I'm aligned uh, spiritually and I have a sense of what what I'm doing here, um, that really feeds into the other areas. Uh, and so even when it looks like maybe I don't have as much money in the bank as my fellow brother or sister out there or, you know, I might get into a little squabble with my wife, uh, often my fault uh, because the foundation is solid, Uh I think I, I'm, I'm, I'm wealthy, like I'm okay, uh, so that, that's how I, it was a long winded answer and I apologize, but I think uh, that got, got me thinking, so thank you.
3: Perfect, it's a perfect answer. Jacob, you have anything to add or?
0: I think,
2: yeah,
3: before I joined the Institute,
2: uh, it was, it was solely based on my, my philosophy was solely based. Um, it was more, I would say it was more indexed towards financial success. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a typical MBA graduate, and you know <laughs> the the mantra is how much money you make defines your your identity in some way. Uh I think one thing and credit to EFOSA as well as the, the colleagues at the institute, I began to see a more broader perspective on how we how we define our lives, right? I think one of the books that um, the late Professor Christensen wrote, uh, which I think for me is one of the the books are highly recommend to the listeners. It's how will you measure your life, and he pretty much used the theories that he came up with to uh, give us an idea of what we should focus on in how we um, define success now. And it's it's more so on how we invest in long term relationships, um, which was something that he saw in his Harvard Business School classmates. Why it was uh, a student to Harvard Business School. And I think that has had a huge impact on how I. I, um, okay. how I'm defining wealth and, and, and just to not to repeat what Efosa said, but I think what's important is, you know, over time, um, how we define uh, the way we impact others, mm-hmm. um, um, begins with ourselves. But overall is, we really have to think about the intangibles, um, which it defines the quality of our relationships. And how we build on that and how we grow with that, I think that has a lot to do with uh, with prosperity, right? Um, and that independence is critical but at the same time. There's some inter- interdependence on how we define the quality of the relationship we have, we have with others. And I think, you know, most of the work we do, uh, we try to help companies or even countries to understand the power of in, 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 uh, independence, but more so on how do they... Align with the, the global world, the global stage, right? They have that identity, but at the same time, how does that fit into global, the global stage? So, uh, quality of relationships, uh, and that begins with you. and, and I highly recommend how will you measure life? by The professor.
1: Okay, we'll be sure to put that in the show notes.
3: <laughs> it's it's interesting though that um, I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm, I'm reflecting on the TED talk, uh, Ifosa and there's a, I don't remember the phrasing exactly, but it was, we're not, we're not here to eradicate poverty, we're here to create prosperity. And so how we define true wealth, or how we define that prosperity individually and as a community becomes really, really, really important. And I think in the West, we often, you know, we confuse it. Um, just like Jacob, you said, like I, I'm an MBA grad, this is, you know, we're measured by how much money we make. And that's too bad because that's not where happiness and well-being comes from. So I, I love both of your answers, it was beautiful.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Um, so, let me uh, move to something maybe a little bit more uh, tangible. Um, Ifosa, in your article in the Harvard Business Review, you mentioned market-creating innovations and how those might be a key to greater prosperity. Can you explain what those are and how they might create social and financial value?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think. Uh, To to get there, let me just uh, talk about the word innovation, uh, because it means so many things to different people, right, depending on who you're talking to. And so innovation, we first define it at the Institute as a change in the process by which we transfer, um, transform inputs of lower value into outputs of higher value. And so you go to a restaurant, they serve you a plate of food, they took a bunch of inputs and they Transformed it into a nice plate of food, and you you eat. And so, any organization like it doesn't even matter if the organization all they do is, uh, you know, write stuff. Is they take a lot of raw materials, they transform it, do something, and then they output it. That's innovation. Now, those outputs of higher value are often accessible to uh, a select uh, number of people uh, in the world right and so uh, the way we think about uh, the types of innovations is by categorizing them and saying who has access to these things and so when you use that framework uh, and then say okay uh, what is a market creating innovation it's an innovation that transforms complicated and expensive products, right? Which are often only uh, available to the the richest members of society. Uh, It transforms them into simple and affordable products so that many, many, many more people uh, can have access to them. And so if uh, we take, for instance, uh, a a situation like insurance, if you look globally, uh, insurance the insurance industry uh, is pretty much anchored in you know, the United States, Western Europe, Japan, uh, many of the wealthier countries. And so it's ironic that the countries where we're not as prone to accidents and life-changing accidents are the countries that have the biggest markets for insurance. And where you have a lot of the accidents, you don't have a a ton of uh, insurance um, products. Well, when you decide to go to, say, in Nigeria or or even parts of the United States, and you say, I want to make insurance affordable and available to this segment of the population that doesn't have access, you're creating a new market. That's a market-creating innovation. And if we look through uh, history at how these types of innovations have impacted the world, uh, you, you, you see example upon example upon example, right? And so a, a quick uh, example would be the proliferation of mobile phones across many, um, what, what folks would say, emerging economies in the world, right? entrepreneurs went into these countries, uh, late 1990s, early 2000s and said, I'm going to create a market, not for the wealthiest, right, Um, but for people who don't have access to easy means to communicate. This is going to impact their businesses, it's going to impact their relationships uh, and create a ton of value. And they were able to do that. And today in the continent of Africa, you now have uh, uh, an industry that supports upwards of two to three million jobs, uh, is worth uh, 150 to $200 billion, uh, has about I think a billion subscriptions, uh, and uh, provides taxes uh, annually to governments uh, to the tune of billions of dollars in taxes. Now, this market that was created uh, that helped ease the transaction in terms of uh, mobile telecommunication uh, had these attendant outputs of benefits uh, and people's lives have been directly impacted as a result. Um, so, so, so I think market-creating innovations are, are, can be
3: incredibly powerful in, in creating access. Ifosa, can you speak to the? And, and you mentioned this in the TED Talk as well. Can you speak to the pull that that creates? You know, someone has yeah. an idea. Hey, let's let's provide some phone services. Or I think in the in the TED Talk it was it was noodles. Um, yeah. um, I, I like the fact that you can do this with four or five different examples. But what, what's the pull that that creates, and why is that so advantageous?
0: Yeah, to, to understand the pull, I think it's critical to uh, first step back and understand how the world. Uh, sees and assesses this poverty prosperity problem when you go into a poor community could even could be in the richest countries in the world and go into a poor community you are slapped with the lack it just hits you in the face there's just so much lack you know people don't have access to education health care uh, affordable like uh, healthy foods i mean, just lack right and our uh, there, there's this Incredible uh desire i think it's a human desire to want to help so we want to go help uh, and and so what we do uh, with the best of intentions i believe is we push the resources that we think these communities need so a community doesn't have access to uh, schools or healthcare uh, clinics or water even uh, depending on how poor we push at schools and whatever the solutions are uh, perhaps the uh, largest uh, example of this in recent time is our approach in afghanistan right we with uh, i think uh, good intentions pushed everything from new institutions to education to hospitals to uh, energy uh, electricity infrastructure we just Pushed a lot of stuff onto the context that was not ready to absorb and receive. Now, the market creating innovation has a different—it's a different approach. It it, it creates the pull effect, as you mentioned, Jonathan. What what it does is, when you go in with an inquisitive uh, mind uh, that is steeped in humility, that says, you know, I don't really know what the answer is. You know, I know what works where I come from or where I live, but I, you know, this is new to me. I don't, you know, let me, let me investigate. When you begin to investigate and you identify a struggle, right? What do all these people around here struggle with? When you do that, you can then say, oh, if I relieve this struggle in an affordable way, I will probably be able to create a market. When you do that, right? You create an organization, so a company, it's a startup or whatever, that that is designed to relieve the struggle, to uh, solve, in our language, the job to be done for uh, these folks in a particular circumstance. When you do that, you create an organization. You need to employ people. The organization needs resources uh, because it's serving a market. And over time, what you find is because every single thing that you are bringing into this organization to support this market you're creating is needed uh, to relieve that struggle, it pulls these things into the economy. Right. And so the things that made sense, that would make sense, you know, roads make sense, schools make sense, all these things make sense. When they are detached, from a struggle or a market that can leverage them really well, they're really, really hard to sustain. When they're connected directly or indirectly to a market, then they become a lot easier to maintain. And I'll end with this, it, you know, I'm not advocating that every problem in the world needs to be solved with a market oriented approach. But I will say, no problem in the world can be solved directly or indirectly without a market. And so, when you even consider all the nonprofits in the world, um, where do they get their funding, right? Behind every nonprofit is a profitable enterprise. So, the Gates Foundation, well, that's Microsoft and then. Uh, Warren Buffett's uh, Berkshire uh, Hathaway, Ford Foundation, well, there's no money for Ford without Ford Motor Company. Um, so any major foundation or organization that is looking to solve some of these intractable problems for the poorest of the poor, or in communities where we have decided markets may not work, they are funded by the returns from markets. And so the pool effect uh is incredibly strong directly because of the the resources that you need to sustain the market, but also indirectly because you have things like foundations and nonprofit organizations that come into the mix as a result of the success of the markets.
3: I'm so I just I don't know if you've researched us at all before this, but I, I do a lot of work with investors, and there's there's, a, there's an enormous growing subset of investing called ESG investing. Mm-hmm. And we we actually just recently interviewed a consultant in the ESG space. That's environment, social governance. This is people trying to have a social impact with their investment dollars. Um, it strikes me that what you're talking about is something that's that's been discussed a lot in um, cleaning up markets or improving markets or having impact through financial services or... And I'm just wondering, you know, we're, we all want this win-win-win, right? Have you thought about or looked at, or Jacob, have you thought about or looked at um, how, how you can harness some investment dollars in these places?
0: Um, so, so
3: Investment dollars in these places. Sorry,
0: just help me understand.
3: Yeah, p- places where, well, in Africa, where you're, where you're trying to create the market, um, I think most investment dollars shy away from the risk mm-hmm involved um and how so how do you pull that money that's not from foundations necessarily but from investors who actually are looking for a return
0: yeah um maybe i could take a stab at this and i'd love jacob to chime in um um who's um, look i cannot uh deny the risks involved in investing in countries that are not uh you know, wealthy. Uh, you know, whether it's the the purchasing power, the 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 level of institutions and trusting the, the 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 legal system, and so on and so forth. Right? There there are risks, but I think what we uh, are trying to do um, is to say every country, every region is on a journey, and we need only remember there was a time when the United States demographics here resembled that of some of the poorest countries in the world. Um, Now, we don't say that to excuse the circumstance many of these countries find themselves, or to say, oh, the risk is the same, or there's no risk. We say that to illustrate a simple idea that it is possible to overcome these things. And that's where applying some of the frameworks and theories that our dearly beloved professor left us with, helps us reduce the risk. Uh, it, it, it does not eradicate the risk, uh, but it does help you make much better decisions uh, as you go into these countries where there is uh, uh, more of a perceived risk. Because uh, I think some of the risk is also perceived. I mean, some is real, but a lot of it is perceived. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of risk in the US as well. There's a ton of corruption. Um, It's viewed differently. Um, Some is baked into the way we do life here, lobbying and so on and so forth. So so we have, we're social creatures. So we've socialized the risk in the US and it is acceptable, like it is okay. Um, But um, we haven't yet socialized the risk in other parts of the world. Um, so if I lose a deal on a deal like WeWork, where um, that was just fraud, um, and uh, uh, maybe uh, the, uh, Theranos, um, th- thankfully the case went to court uh, with, with Theranos, um, I mean, that's just, that's just flat out fraud. Well, if that happened in Nigeria or some other country, I think the effect on the country's reputation would be a lot more. So there is some socialization that has happened, um, but we we do try to say, guys, this the situation we understand is not the same. Some of these systems are not as well developed, but there are ways you can invest here that uh, will will help uh, you know change people's lives. Uh, you know we write a lot about it, provide examples, case studies, and we also really try to remind people of. W- where we've come from, um, but yeah, I don't know if Jacob has something else to add there.
2: Yeah. Oh, definitely, and and I mean to add to that, too, right? I think um, the lenses that we use at the institute, which we ascribe to as the theories uh, that we write a lot of our work uh, through, is you know, once you, once you look through those lenses, you see the opportunities, right? So there's this uh, aspect of how do you redefine really or assess this through that lenses. And you definitely see um, how can you really understand the market um, uh, in this growth economies as we define it. Um, I mean, the second thing I would say is, you know, as you localize the problem, you begin to see much more clearly how these opportunities can become, um, you know, considering the risk, how these opportunities can actually create uh, a high value of of just economic you know, and social wealth, right? So localization is very critical. And the third thing I will say is that, and this might be a shameless plug, but we we actually piloted a What Investors Want series where we brought in investors, uh, three amazing investors to really give us an idea of what investors are thinking about, what do investors want? And um, I'll, 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 I'll highly recommend, uh, if also I wrote a blog on, on that, on some of the, Takeaways we had on that, and we'll have a, a more flushed out uh, what investors want series, like the actual series this year. Um, but you know, we do stuff like that to help people understand on, on the back end what do you, what are investors thinking about this market, and um, and I'm really optimistic about just the the way they look at it, right? The frameworks in which they access the market. So um, I think it's really important to to understand the localized view of how these markets work and the people that are actually doing work in those markets and how they access those markets. Because without that, we will always misinterpret uh, the risk, which is there, but you know, how do we effectively measure the risk, objectively measure the risk. Um, But as an African and as a Camerian, I'm really optimistic about the upside in in Africa. You know, there's a lot of data that shows that um, if you do it correctly, you will definitely make a lot of financial return. But most, more, more importantly, to be a social uh, uh, impact uh, that you create if you are in innovative markets. So, um, yeah, so just.
1: So I'm curious, you know, at the beginning of the interview, uh, Ifosa, you mentioned, uh, you know, reconciling this like macro and micro. So, I think we've talked a fair bit of on the macro level, but if we get into something more micro, so let's say I'm an investor, I'm sitting here in North America, I have some dollars, and um there's an entrepreneur presumably somewhere on the African continent or, or in another or in Afghanistan or something who wants funding for their project. now, how do those two things? end up fitting together because it's, to me, it's a little bit opaque, right? Like if I have, you know, whatever retirement fund money here that I want to do something productive with, like how, how, what do I do? And then how do the people on the ground then generate those ideas that some people can fund? Like,
0: <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's uh, that is the million dollar question. Um, and I will answer that uh, by giving another example, just so that your listeners can appreciate how important that question is. If you were a set investor and you had a hundred thousand dollars and you wanted to give that away, you can, you don't have to do a Google. You could just, there are so many ways to give that money away that it doesn't, it's not difficult. That's because the infrastructure to help us give money away is very easy, right? Whether I donate it to the UN or the World Health Organization or World Vision, there, there, there's infrastructures. There are fewer infrastructures set up to help you as an investor go into a country and invest, at least with your money, maybe not you physically one of the organizations i'm uh i've been writing for and i'm a a part of is called the faith driven investor Uh, i'm faith driven entrepreneur they are really trying to solve this problem and so recently uh middle of last year i believe they started a marketplace where they um, would vet deals bring them on um and accredited investors could take a look and you know, deploy some capital. Uh, essentially, what we need to build, um, and anytime anybody says "we," I'm I'm, I'm sometimes critical because I'm like, who who are you talking about? Um, but what needs to be built uh, is a similar type of infrastructure that makes it incredibly easy for the investor you spoke about, Terry, to go online, say, you know. I wanna invest in entrepreneurs in Ghana or wherever. Uh, Maybe I don't know the world a lot, but in this region, in South Asia, and there are systems that help him or her do that. If that happens, the floodgates will, will be open. We know this because we've seen what happened with Kiva. They did this at a micro, micro level. You know, I go give $25, $50, um, somebody buys a goat or something uh, in, in some country, right? And they, with the $25, $50, they've, they've moved billions of dollars. I don't know the actual number off the top of my head, but they've moved a ton of money. Imagine if we created a similar infrastructure for like, you know, accredited investors who say, you know, let me deploy fifty dollars or $100,000 um, dollars that 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 that's um that could that could have a a lot of impact there are some syndicate funds coming up now future africa is one um a few others are escaping my mind now but um but but we need more of those
3: yeah that's you you perfectly set up the last question i really really appreciate that so just as a as a quick aside my um every year at uh, my kids' schools, you know, you're not supposed to give the teachers, you know, gifts because it's, you know, it's manipulative or whatever. So we we because actually the
0: teachers make too much,
3: right? r- yeah no yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but so what we've always done is is we've actually made a gift through Kiva in the name of the teachers to something that they've expressed interest in. My my wife worked with Kiva for I don't know 10 years on their on their badging different programs, you know, this program is quality, this is where they excel, this is where they fall down, those kinds of things. So it's, it's fantastic. Um, but I love your idea of taking it out of the development world and putting it the same concept in the investment world. Um, and that leads to this question. Why do, and you've touched on this a little bit, why do the in quote unquote investments we make in economic development fail to generate the results that we want to see? Why is it that that doesn't work? And can you use that to tie it all together for us? Yeah, I, you know,
0: I, I, you know, it's a, it's it's an excellent question, Jonathan. I will I will say I don't know that they fail um, because we we to 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 assess whether or not they fail. Now, in my opinion, I think they fail. So I want to be clear. I think they they fail. I think we can do a lot better. So I want to be clear. Um, But if I set out as a goal to alleviate poverty, um, and so Jacob comes to me with some pain, and I say, Jacob, I'm going to alleviate your pain. I don't tell you for how long. I don't tell you how much. um, And I do something that alleviates Jacob's pain for a little bit. He still has the underlying problem year over year over year. But when he hung out with me for a little bit, I alleviated his pain. In many ways, I could write an annual report and say, look at how many people's pains I alleviated this year, right? And so, for the development world, which I think is, is why uh, our approach of creating prosperity uh, is important, um, many people are focused on alleviating poverty for one reason or another, right? And when they assess their programs through that lens, they are successful and they say things like, if we give these families $50 a month for five years and we don't give these families $50 a month, we can see how $50 a month changes, improves the lives of these these families we gave. They're still poor, Don't, don't get me, they're still poor, And none of us would ever trade places with them, but we write papers and say, look at, like $50 could go a long way. They have defined the problem, in my opinion, incorrectly. They are asking the wrong question. Of course, when you donate mosquito nets and you give um, free cash transfers and things like that, you will have some impact. But what is the goal here, right? Is the goal to alleviate the pain and struggle a little bit, or is the goal to fundamentally transform people's lives and thereafter economies to make them independent beings, right? I don't need your money, Jonathan, and Terry, I don't need your, your anything. I have a job. I have, I'm able to provide for myself and my family. There's some dignity with that why can't that be the goal, right? So I think development, a lot of the funding, in my opinion, fails, because I'm asking a different question. I'm assessing success differently. For many of the funders, it may actually be doing exactly what they want. Um, And it is having the kind of impact they want. And so until they ask different questions, give themselves the kind of goals that scare them like like really like the continent of africa becomes a continent where people don't need aid anymore uh you know south asia like india bangladesh like not. that's a scary vision but i'm like we've done it (laughs) i mean china's doing it right now i mean so, so like it's possible Let's give ourselves that vision Um, because at the end of the day, as far as I know, we're all going to die someday, right? Like, I don't know if you guys were aware, but, (laughs) you know, the clock is ticking. And I would rather we spend our time here on things that could fundamentally transform people's lives while we have the opportunity. Um, The marginal improvement, I struggle with that a little bit.
3: Thank you, uh, Ifosa and Jacob. This has been fantastic. We just started to itch something that I want to come back and talk about, but we are out of time. Uh, And so maybe we'll have to do this again in season three. But uh, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on, you two.
0: Absolutely. Thank you guys for thinking of us and for reaching out. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you.